Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hi, folks. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings and inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley. I'm a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics, and I am joined, as I am every week, by my co-host, Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, great to see you. How are you? You too. I'm good, Rob. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very well. I'm in the Pacific Northwest today uh, as we record oh. this, and so... Uh, very very warm time. weekend here in the Pacific Northwest. Is it? Yeah, it's yeah. warm here too in the East Coast. This yeah, summer, this yeah, weekend. that's what happens yeah. in in summer, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> we're not there yet, but yeah, it does yeah, happen yeah. in little, the summer. A little hotter than normal here. <laughs> but I was thinking, I was doing some live stuff this week with folks, and as you know, I probably I spent a ton of time by myself in a, in a home <laughs> office setting. <laughs> Sorry, you made me. I was laughing, but you started coughing. Yeah, I, I'm alone. Okay. I'm very alone. You're alone. A lot no, of the so <laughs> so I just wondered, what is the split for you these days in terms of like live stuff and working with yeah. clients face to face, and then and how much you, you're working by yourself? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I would say it's probably thirty percent in person. Actually, that might even be too much. Twenty percent in person. Okay. Eighty percent. From home, but you're pretty comfortable in the in-person setting, right? Like it's yeah, not yeah. New, it's oh, not totally. new to you. It's been for, for the last couple of years. You've been doing a lot of in-person stuff. Yeah, I would say since the end of 2021. Okay. Um, all of 2022. Yeah. I was seeing. I was out seeing clients. Clients are definitely wanting to have people come back into the office. So yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Been yeah. I get. I get a little anxious. I'm a little anxious these days, right? Like getting right. Like the more the more time I spend. I mean, and that's what I'm trying to do is is do a lot more face to face stuff and have more clients that are a little sure. bit more local and and so I'll make trips as well. So, but it's very yeah. it's, it's just very different, right? And you actually it can feel your heartbeat a little bit differently. And uh-huh. but it's also it's also awesome. But it's definitely like I can certainly appreciate. I was talking to someone yesterday, and it was their first day in an office environment, and sure. I was like, wow, I I can totally appreciate when people say that they're anxious or uh, that. You know, it's not something that they feel comfortable with, right? As we think about everyone, you know, because Amazon here in Seattle and Amazon is really ordering people trying to get them back in the office. And so I was just thinking that, you know, there's a lot of people going through uh, the same thing in terms of their anxiety. So Jamie Dimon is, uh, (laughs) he's kind of ordering people to come back no matter what. But yeah, I I mean, it's such a, you know, and I think of mental health awareness month, I think we need to talk about it more um, just in general. But yeah, that. Rob, I have a surprise for you. I don't know if you know this yet. What is it? I'll, I'll, we're going to be recording an episode, hopefully in person. A couple in the weeks, next right? Weeks. In the next couple, couple weeks. weeks. I'm excited. So I'm that hoping is exciting. if everything yeah. works out, right? I think that the, um, I don't think I'll have a ton of anxiety recording in person with you. So I'm, I I'm, hope not. <laughs> if I do, <laughs> if I but do, that's the end of the show. All right. Well, let's let's uh, get to this week's uh, stories, the deets, as we Absolutely. call it. Absolutely. You want to yeah, start us we'll off? Get to the deets. I will. 
So according to NPR, a major new poll of Asians in the U.S. was conducted by the Pew Research Center. Um, and there were a few findings that were really interesting. Um, this poll, poll was about 7,000 adults. It was conducted in English and five other languages. And it sheds light on how Asians, both immigrants and people who were born here in the U.S., how they see themselves and others. Um, it also put a focus. I, I think it's important to just recognize that it puts a focus on the six largest subgroups. So Chinese, mm -hmm. Filipino, Indian, Japanese, Korean and Vietnamese. Um, and then do you want to share with you what the findings were? Yeah. What are, you, what are your favorite things? What are the things you picked out? Well, there were five findings. I'm going to share all five because I think all of them are really, I mean, I, I Think about how different South those Asian. groups are that you just named. They are. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And that was one of the findings, right? So, like, first of all, let's also consider that this is the fastest growing racial and ethnic, ethnic group in recent years. So the first finding was only 16% call themselves Asian American. Most prefer to use their specific ethnicities, which I relate to, right? Like, sure. For me, and I, I, you know, I'm sure you have many, um, you know, Asian, South Asian, East Asian friends. We don't, I don't, I don't want to say, we, I'm going to speak in I sentences. Mm -hmm. I prefer to identify as Pakistani American or American Pakistani. And I kind of go back and forth between the two, which is interesting, but, um, or South Asian. So mm -hmm. that was interesting. There, uh, number two, the, um, there were differences in how Asian immigrants and those born in the U.S. see themselves. For example, how long an Asian immigrant has been in the U.S. has been um, kind of bearing on how they identify. The third is respondents don't see Asians in the U.S. as a monolithic group. And we talked about this to some degree with our prior guest, Sadia Khan, of um, the Immigrant Leap podcast. Sure. So that was, that was interesting. Ninety percent of U.S. Asians say they are a variety of cultures among ethnic groups. Um, the fourth finding was one in five Asian adults has hidden some aspect of their heritage from non-Asians. I think this is really critical. I mean, this is my whole study, mm -hmm. my dissertation work of how we show up in the workplace right. um, and kind of those invisible or visible differences. And so I thought that was quite interesting. And then the fifth is Asians are politically diverse. I think you may find this interesting. 62% of Asian adults said that they were Democrats or leaning towards that way. Okay. But they share similar views of what it means to be an American with other U.S. adults, like believing in individual freedoms or, you know, valuing and respecting diversity yeah. um, of individuals. So it's interesting stuff, you know, and I, I think it's important to highlight this throughout the year, but also because it is um, APIDA month. Um, AAPI month. A lot of people have different acronyms for I Asian was, um, American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Yeah, I always use uh, Asians. I'm doing air quotes as an example of over aggregation in demographic yes. data, because if you think about, obviously, it's a huge chunk of our workforce. As you said, a growing portion of the workforce, and so it's we know that it's extremely diverse within that group, right? But we treat it the same in workplaces and workplace data. We treat it all the same, so. These folks can be overrepresented, so South Asians in tech or East Asians in biotech or the life sciences. I know that they can be underrepresented in functions like sales, right? So uh, a lot of different different types of groups are uh, they're not given sales jobs or customer facing jobs or big sales jobs, things yeah, like that. Sure. Uh, there's huge income disparity between those that are doing the best in this demographic group and those who are doing the worst, right? And obviously that's going to affect how they show up in the workplace and what kind of programs need put in place in order to support them. If we lump them all together as Asian, then we don't necessarily know that or think yeah, about that. Sure. Um, so they, they feel like they're not a monolith because they're not a monolith yeah. at all, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. right. Um, I mean, this is why many of us 
hate filling out the census. And historically, the census has grouped us into like five or six different categories. And I think about, you know, I have many um, uh, Middle Eastern friends, Arab, Iranian, Persian, however they identify. And they they through the census will identify as white because there's no other box. Maybe mm. sometimes they'll mark off other and then put themselves. And so as you're collecting data, you're influencing, you're, you're partnering, consulting with organizations where they're collecting data. It's like, are we collecting the most accurate representation of an organization? Because there's not enough boxes to be checked off. Right, right, for sure. And also, can I say something about the Pew study, right? So like yeah. one of the questions, what does it mean to be truly American? I, that, I found that kind of gross. I don't know if you had the same uh, reaction. Did you? Tell me, like, yeah. Like, like, the point of the survey, right, to, to test for Americanness, right, just seemed like a very jingoistic type question for me, right? Uh, so yeah, interesting. Uh, sometimes I, the questions, I, I think it was leading to like values and understanding like what the... Yeah, I don't like Americanness the, tests, you know? Like, I, don't, I don't even like, I don't like the phrasing. I don't know. I'm, right. I, maybe I'm sensitive to that. That's fair. Someone no, who's not fair. sensitive is Richard Dreyfus, Nadia. Uh, yeah, oh my gosh, tell me more. Let's talk about Richard Dreyfus if we yeah. can. So the Academy Awards, you know them and I know them as the Oscars. So it's, it's introducing diversity standards uh, in 2024. So in order to be eligible for awards, um, you, know, you have to meet certain criteria in terms of your representation, diversity, things like that. And last week, Richard Dreyfus, who was in Jaws, I believe, uh, I'm not sure what else, he was not that. excited about the, these new standards. Dreyfus said that they make him want to vomit, that because he's an artist, mm-hmm. no one should be telling him that uh, he has to give in to the latest morality trends. He's also upset because apparently he wants to be able to play a black character. And, and have you seen Richard Dreyfus? I think that would be something. That would be something interesting, right? Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> like, he wants to be. I'm going to put this in quote black blackface. I don't know. Is that I, what he wants? I think he would have to be in order to play. So, so there was a whole. His his rant was, like was just something whole. like, "What if I want to play a black character?" And then like, "You can't. I'm sorry. You're not going to be. No one would ever cast you that way." So. So one, can I just give you one other take on just the Oscars in general while we're talking about yeah, this, right? Please. So so why are we giving awards for art? I've never really understood this. I always think about there's the there's a Pearl Jam documentary where the guitarist has his like Grammy sitting in a waste, you know, like it's in a uh, in a laundry basket, like in his basement. And they're they're like, well, you know, why why don't you care more about this? He's like, because it's an award for art, and who ca- and who cares? That's not cool. So, um, you know, so. First of all, and then one more thing, he doesn't have to do anything to meet these, to, you know, to meet these standards. He has to do it if he wants to be eligible for this award for art, for the award. which is not right. cool, in my opinion. So therefore, okay. what do you think, Nadia? <laughs> Wait, I mean, I think it could be cool to get an award for art. I mean, this is like artistic minds and work. But uh, I, honestly, the morality trends comment bothers me. I also just like Richard Dreyfus seems appears to be someone who grew up in an era that there was like prevalent segregation and maybe definitely hostile discrimination. I'm not trying to like age him, but I believe he grew up in a time that was very different than now. Um, And I also just I don't know if he actually understands or gets like why the academy is doing it and that might be on the academy for its due diligence to like review with actors or whoever in terms of like why this matters and Mm -hmm. like historically why it matters and i think this is a lesson for other organizations like when you implement a policy or practice like make sure you you believe why you're doing it and then communicate that 
I also just think Richard Dreyfus might be a dud, so I don't really care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he's kind of confused. So that's a really great point. I really like. I really appreciate you talking about communicating why you're doing yeah. it and how it can improve things for everyone. But I do like. I don't know if you saw the standards. I like the way that they're implementing them. Right. So okay, I didn't. Um, see I didn't them, dig so yeah, too yeah. deep, but I mean, they're giving the industry time. Right. So they announced these, you know, a year and a half ago. They don't go into effect until 2024. Because it's a film, it's a little different. So the films have to meet standards in two of four areas. So it's an interesting way to do it. And so I think it can be applied, that model can be applied in a lot of different areas. So I want to learn more about the way they did it. But I thought it was super reasonable, uh, okay. not the highest bar to be able to hit in, a, in you know two to three years. Uh, but I think it drives some of the right behaviors. And it takes into the account the fact that if you're doing a film where maybe it doesn't call, call for... Um, uh, characters that are from an underrepresented background in the United States, right? Like if it's if it's a white yeah. s- story, you can still have diversity within your production teams, within yeah. uh, the way it's financed. There's all these things I you mean, can bring into art. a production of a we, film. It's art, Rob. We, it, like look at Hamilton. Everyone cast in Hamilton was a person of color. The only person that was white was the king. I mean, there was so much messaging in just Hamilton the musical that Lynn Miranda wanted to make sure that people like you don't have it, it I don't I just I feel like we need to move forward and enter the 21st century I do and appreciate I also, yeah yeah and like honestly Richard Dreyfuss should probably talk to his fellow um actresses the actresses activists ladies Jane Fonda and Lindley Tomlin because they do a lot of this type of work and maybe he needs just to sit down and have a conversation with them so that they he can understand like how to enter into this like 21st century and maybe Richard Dreyfus can play the king in Hamilton maybe there you go <laughs> well that's it for the deeds uh this week we will be right back with our guests Dr. Joya Smith and Dr. Greg Beaver of Suffolk University This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Welcome back, folks. This week on Inclusive Collective, we welcome Dr. Joya Smith and Dr. Greg Beaver. Dr. Joya Smith serves as the Vice President of Diversity, Access, and Inclusion at Suffolk University and is committed to institutional community building, equity, and inclusive excellence. She has worked in a variety of roles in higher education, ranging from director of TRIO programs to adjunct professor with the mission of embracing diversity and accelerating inclusion. She currently supports programming such as the Ambassador for the Inclusion Professional Learning Community, Affinity at Suffolk, Employee Resource Groups, Equity in the Curriculum Series, 
Access and Opportunity Fellowship Program and the Truth Racial Healing and Transformation Initiative. Dr. Smith finds inspiration from her students, particularly understanding the student experiences and perspectives, which allow her to focus on practices that engage and support all institutional stakeholders. She's very, very busy. Dr. Greg Beaver is an assistant professor of management and entrepreneurship at the Sawyer Business School at Suffolk University. He is also faculty fellow for diversity, equity, and inclusion. He teaches an undergraduate course about diversity at work called Managing Across Differences and the graduate level course called Building Inclusive Organizations. His research focuses on diversity and inclusion in the workplace, team dynamics, and the inclusion of stigmatized identities at work. In his spare time, he can be found walking his six-year-old golden retriever named Agatha Marie and feeding his constantly hungry 10-year-old cat named Winston. I love those names, by the way. (laughs) Welcome, Dr. Smith and Dr. Beaver. So good to have you join us this week on Inclusive Collective. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's great to meet you both and to have you both here. I, I, my, my first question can be for, for both of you in, in some ways, right? So um, as you think about either support for students, curriculum, and then on the other side from a faculty perspective, what are the considerations that go into the design of the programs? Um, are there particular gaps that you see that need to be addressed? And, and in designing either curriculum or, or the support, do they come from things that students have, have, have told you about their needs, right? So how do, you, how do you think about all those things together? So this is a, a wonderful question, and I think the timing of it is perfect. Uh, right now, we have just conducted a climate survey. So with mm. that information, we have um, insight as to what students are looking for related to the curriculum as well as just the climate in general. Mm. Um, and in addition to that, we have heard from faculty in terms of the support side, in terms of what they would like to see in the curriculum and, and how they can garner those resources so that they can be impactful in the classroom. So I would say getting information from students through a climate survey, faculty and staff as well. But then there are other ways for us to kind of collect um, information, just kind of hearing what's happening in other institutions, connecting with peers. Um, I think there are a lot of indicators, if you will, that you know, help us look at our curriculum a little bit differently each year um, and then really enacting practices that really um, help us improve and enhance those things. So I think that's where we've landed so far. Yeah. Dr. Beaver? Oh, well, on top of what Joy has already said, I would add that a few years ago, we sent a survey out to the faculty and just to gauge their interest in building inclusive curriculum and, and if they're already using some type of learning materials that's, you know, focused on DEI. And we did get some feedback from interested faculty, quite a few from across different disciplines and, and uh, different departments. Um, so we had some idea about you know, who was interested and who was already using material and how could we then share that material across all the faculty? That's great. I'm, I'm actually, um, so I should have said this earlier in the intros, but I'm so thrilled having (laughs) you both here because I'm an MBA alum of, of Suffolk University. So yay. Um, so I love hearing about, you know, the good work that 
has happened and continues to happen um, on campus. And so I'm just curious from the faculty perspective, some of the programs that you're seeing some institute, um, what, if any, type of measurement is involved to kind of understand either the the effectiveness of what they're implementing through the program um, in terms of what's working well or what might need to adjust or become a best practice? Are you kind of understanding that, that through measurement? Well, I can say that from the activities that Joya and I create, we can measure participation. We can measure completion of different activities. We can measure who comes to the events. We can kind of keep track. And it's a pretty simple way of measuring, but I think Joya may have other ways that we're measuring the impact of it. Mm -hmm. So what comes to mind, um, as you can see, it's not a clear cut way that we are uh, measuring, I would say the impact, um, but there are um, instances where we're able to ask alum, you know, once they graduate, you know, was the material that you learned in your courses helpful to you when you entered an inclusive environment? Or how does it impact the way that you operate in um, your organization? Um, there are NACE competencies that um, we are trying to get at least our first year students to start thinking about in terms of, and NACE stands for, oh goodness, the National Association of College Employers. I think that's it. Uh, but they are responsible for uh, helping us think about those skills that students need post-graduation and finding ways to incorporate those. And I think it was last year or the year before, they renamed one of their NACE competencies, um, that's diversity and inclusion. So to me, it's very telling that at least on the external piece, students will be measured um, based on how they interact and um, operate in certain industries on that DEI kind of measure. So it's not a prescribed one. It's still kind of abstract, if you will. But I think there are mechanisms that are starting to grow that will help us really measure that impact a little stronger. Uh, but that's just one place um, within the curriculum. And I know um, certain disciplines have DEI added to their accreditation um, um, pieces. And so I, I know Greg can speak to that. Um, business schools now have um, a DEI component that they are rated on. Um, and I think they're still trying to configure what does that look like with the curriculum? What does that look like um, when we're um, developing inclusive teaching strategies? How are we measuring that? So I think it's still in production, if you will. Sure. Um, but there are, you know, different industries and segments that are starting to find ways to measure that because it's still a little abstract. Um, but I think it's one thing that is important for us to be able to determine if we're, what we're doing is really impacting the outcomes that we expect. Sure. Right. I, right. I think it's really important to be able to measure that as far as, as Joya said, you know, our business school adding diversity and inclusion to its own uh, mission, I guess we can call it, but it's still not, we're not held to account for how we are approaching diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I think that's an important missing piece at the moment. The faculty are not 
you know, asked to present any kind of uh, evidence for promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion concepts in their classroom. Mm. So I think that's probably the next yeah. step. Yeah, I think that's kind of where I was, was, what I was thinking about in terms of we kind of jumped right into uh, curriculum and support and things like that. But, you know, I think that we all probably agree that building inclusive leaders or building inclusion into the curriculum shouldn't be super controversial, right? But we know that in the environment that we're in, um, you know, especially in the higher education field, <laughs> it, it becomes uh, somewhat, it's been made political, it's been politicized, it's become somewhat controversial. What are some of the things that, uh, that faculty need in terms of support for either them engaging in this type of work, um, you know, and then also balancing it, something we all really value, which is academic freedom. What are, what are some of the things that uh, faculty needs in terms of support here? I think one that's we're still trying to work on how we would approach it, but how faculty can become more comfortable with these topics in their classroom. You know, how can faculty be prepared to deal with the microaggression, for example, that comes up, or how how to have a difficult conversation in the middle of your lesson. You know, those are things that we all need to prepare for and we all need workshops. We need learning, we need courses. And uh, Joy and I are thinking about different ways in our own programming, how we can create those opportunities. And I would just add, um, we know that practice is important. And so we are really striving to create opportunities for people to interact and to practice, you know, how would you handle um, disruption in the classroom before it actually mm. happens? Okay. You know, how would you pause the room? How would you address something in, you know, that's taking place in real time? So we're really trying to garner um, the support of faculty to invest their time in that type of activity before it happens. Um, because, mm. you know, being proactive will really help uh, a lot more than just having to react on the on the other end of things. And so that's one thing um, we created um, what we've called an inclusive teaching portfolio program. And in that particular um, portfolio, we're inviting faculty to consider various elements of diversity, equity and inclusion, um, something as simple as um reorganizing the syllabi to include information around uh, DEI and the resources, as well as helping faculty to think about what are the materials that they're using? Are they all from mm -hmm. one demographic? Are there, you know, gaps in how they are presenting um, new and emerging information? And not only just the materials themselves, but also thinking about the teaching strategies and the assessment. Um, there's, you know, room for sage on the stage, if you will, that former way of, you know, lecturing to students. But um, we know that this generation that are uh, college age, they're a little different in the way that they um, receive and um, learn and, and that sort of thing. And so we have to be mindful of how do we really engage the student in ways that we can really reach them um, because what worked maybe 10 years ago may not work today. Yeah, sure. um, and so again, helping faculty to think about, you know, how am I presenting this information? What do I really want students to, to learn? 
and to apply and how can they apply this information? And then the assessment piece. Uh, I think this is more of an emerging piece in, in higher education is thinking about how do we um, truly assess um, what students are learning? Is it just giving them a paper or is it giving them an opportunity to create a video or to do a podcast? You know, there are different methods to help students learn and apply the information. And sometimes faculty are a little hesitant to do that. But again, you know, Greg and I are finding ways to uh, help faculty um, think about those things, but not think about them in terms of while they are teaching. So we're really trying to uh, make good use of like the summer months or those kind of shadow times in the semester where faculty can really plan out and practice uh, some of these new and engaging and inclusive strategies. I love that. I, I, I feel like that, you know, we spoke to actually um, the head, director of DE&I at Harvard um, MBA and doctoral programs last week, and she was specifically talking about the student experience and what the students needs and kind of accommodations are. And I love that there's an angle to support the faculty um, specifically from either changing like the, the learning mode or considering different learning modes and modalities. And, you know, when we think of students maybe with various learning abilities or folks with different, um, maybe living with invisible or visible disabilities, um, so I, I love that uh, there's like a program that you folks have really considered in in providing that support. What about support for staff? So, um, you know, I, I, I wonder, Dr. Smith, faculty is definitely, you know, customer facing in the sense that it's student facing. And then there's there's, you know, staff that um, it supports the faculty and the students itself. Is there also resources available for for those folks to um, kind of consider their inclusive behaviors and practices and strategies as well. Yes. So we created a program called the Ambassador for Inclusion uh, Professional Learning Community. And it's um, a program where it's open to faculty, staff, and alumni. Uh, but we are noticing that in terms of participation, we have a large number of uh, staff that participate in this program as well as alum. Um, and the tenets of this program is really to provide, um, again, that learning community or that space for uh, people to really engage in DEI materials, regardless of where they are in their learning. So we start out with um, independent study materials where we have this really long resource list where people have an opportunity to engage in um, reading and videos and things of that nature that really help them learn about um, the areas of DEI that they are unfamiliar with. Uh, we couple that with a couple of other activities. So we have a weekly uh, community dialogue session. So everyone that's a part of the cohort and it's a six-week cohort have an opportunity to come um, for one hour to talk about whatever the topic is for that week again, giving people that opportunity to engage in the conversation, but then also go back and do personal reflection. So we um, encourage people to do a journal reflection on the materials for the week, because again, having them think about it, talk about it, write about it, and explore a little bit more um, 
based on where they are in their own learning to me is probably the the best way for people to really engage in this this work if you will um this program started at the summer of 2020 so <laughs> this is our third uh summer um but we've had eight cohorts to go oh, wow. through this particular program and what we have found, oh, I forgot one other component of the program. You are paired with a peer partner. And so you're able to have individual conversations around whatever you're learning. Because again, we know that the dialogue piece helps us to grow and to kind of push and challenge ourselves with our thinking. And so um, after eight cohorts, um, I think we are making an impact across our campus. Um, again, with our staff in particular, because they are the ones who are um, some of the main participants, but then also with our alumni. Um, this program um, has allowed not only the staff to, to go through it, but then to engage with alumni who are also experiencing uh, a learning um, around DEI in their own organizations. Yeah. So they're able to kind of you know, talk about what's happening, let's just say in the workforce, whatever the industry, and compare it to what's happening in higher end. So you can tell I'm really excited about yeah. the program. Yeah. Um, but we, um, I think, are, are making a difference in the way that people think about DEI. Um, a lot of times people shy away from it because they don't really know their place. You know, how do I fit into DEI? And so we're hoping to invite people in and to find their place and to then you know, feel empowered and confident enough to make a difference wherever they are in their organization. That's so you can tell I'm really excited about it. I love program. it. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I, I'm excited too, just listening to you. And I, and I wonder, I know, I know it's hard to measure, but I'm just wondering, you know, and, and oftentimes we have too much anecdotal evidence and not enough actual hard evidence, but I would imagine if you've been at it for three years, I, I'm just thinking about the prospective student and when, when they're looking at a place that they want to continue their education, their business education, does it feel different to, you know, I don't, I don't know if Dr. Beaver can speak to it, um, but just, and, and is that something that people are looking for in, uh, in an MBA or in a business education? They're looking for uh, an environment where the faculty, the staff, the students are all thinking about inclusion. I hope so. I think that's... <laughs> I think that over the, I've worked at Suffolk for five years and over the five years, we've added some, um, some required, but some elective programs related to diversity, equity, inclusion. And, and in the five years that I've been there, they've become more and more popular. So our grad level courses and, you know, focus of my undergrad classes on diversity have all been full. So they've all been very well attended. So I hope that's the reason why they're taking them. I hope that's what they're looking for. And that's why they're choosing Suffolk as the place to go. That's great. Um, actually, Dr. Beaver, just if you could talk briefly, and I feel like at some point we're going to have to have you back on so you could talk about this in depth. But I know some of your research is around employer resource groups and um, the effectiveness of what that might look like um, in in, in organizations. I'm curious if you could give us a brief kind of understanding of what you found in your research. I know that's probably 
It's a lot to ask, <laughs> but I'm just curious if you just a brief understanding of what you found, what you're excited about. And then uh, absolutely, I think you might need to have you back on so you can expand yeah. that on that. Well, thank you. And it is the focus of my dissertation for my PhD and multiple papers are now either published or under review. But one thing that I think is we haven't really thought about in the business sense is why people are members. And is it really effective to have allies involved? It, and I think the, the answer is it really matters why someone is joining. Like mm. If they're looking for finding a similar other identity, perhaps having a majority of ally members kind of dilutes that for them. Or if it's looking for career advancement, maybe allies help. So it really depends on the reason why someone is being is involved in the employee resource group. And this paper that I have under review right now kind of cautions organizations to think about that before opening up or encouraging ally involvement. Like what, what are your goals for having this program? That's great. I can't wait to read the article <laughs> when it's published. And for sure, I think we're going to have to have you back on so you can do a little bit more of understanding just how that translates into practice and organization. Definitely. For sure. Um, well, Dr. Smith and Dr. Beaver, thank you so much for joining us on Inclusive Collective this week. Um, we really appreciated you sharing um, insights of what's happening at Suffolk and, and just some best practices to share. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity. Enjoy the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. Stay with us, folks, for a bit. We'll be right back for our Calm Reflections and Raves and Rants. Welcome back to Inclusive Collective. Nadi, we just finished speaking with Dr. Joya Smith, Dr. Greg Beaver. And my first reflection, uh, before we get into it, because I'm curious to hear all the things that you took away, since I know you know this, this field well and this topic yes. well. Yeah. is uh, that I, I thought it was really cool that people are encouraging students to uh, think about different ways to learn that are more inclusive and, and ways to, uh, to, you know, to do their work. I was worried that they were encouraging their students to do podcasts. I think the oh. space is a little saturated. <laughs> we don't need, so we that, don't need competitors. Uh, she thought, I was like, yeah, let's, let's nix that idea right away. We'll shut that down. Um, but what did you think as, as, uh, as talking to the, the doctors? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I loved speaking with them because, I, you know, like I said, we spoke to, um, uh, we, we spoke to Alicia Thomas last week who gave the student experience. And I think it's really important to just understand what the faculty ex and staff mm. experiences and the it fact that it can't be easy, right? It can't be easy. I mean, yeah. I can't imagine that it's easy. There's probably a lot of pressure. And I was a student and, and I still am a student. And I, I did find in my particular program, um, not at Suffolk, but I was in a program where faculty is very accustomed to kind of teaching the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. And not that they are not updated on their research. They are. But I think that there's different lenses and viewpoints. And sometimes we get so stuck on our lens and, and perspective. And that becomes easy and comfortable to teach. And so when we go think outside of the box, maybe thinking of different curriculum, different scholars, scholars from different backgrounds, um, different theories that we're not used to. I, I think that that could become a challenge for some faculty and trying something different. And so I do appreciate the fact that there is support, like Dr. Smith was talking about this inclusive portfolio program. Um, the support for faculty, the support for staff to really kind of emphasize more inclusion, inclusive 
practices and behaviors in the classroom, outside of the classroom for the student and overall growth of the university. So really pleased and happy that they shared their perspectives. Um, yeah, it was a great episode. Yeah, it was great. Okay, folks, it's that time for rants and raves. Uh, Rob, you're up with the rant. You got the I'm a ranter. You got the rant. I am I am ranting today. Okay. So Nadia, I'd like to rant about the country of Egypt. Oh. Okay. The whole country. So Nadia, as you know, you're you're a big you're you're a big fan of the uh the the TV, right? The television, yes. right? You you watch some you watch some series. I watch some so series. So Netflix has a show called Queens of Africa. Okay. And in it, they cast a black actress to play the role of Cleopatra. And the Egyptian government has lost its collective shit, apparently. Oh. And also the country of Egypt in, in general. They're not happy about this. So the Netflix comment section online had to be shut down because of the negative response oh, wow. and racist comments online. So I was thinking about this in the context of what we talked about earlier, this juxtaposition with Richard Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Back to Richard Dreyfus. <laughs> totally confident. And saying that he wants to play a black person, and it's no big deal to him. Oh and then an entire country losing their shit over the fact that Netflix cast a black person to play a historical figure, of which we do not have a lot of information about her appearance. Yeah. And it's not impossible at all that she had African or Middle Eastern heritage. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, this, that's interesting. At the rant, so I'm going to have no comment for now, but we'll have other <laughs> folks make their... Let's see how it plays out. Maybe, maybe we come back yeah, to it, actually. sure. All right. So let me move on to the rave. So President Biden is expected to nominate Air Force General Charles Q. Brown Jr. as the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, becoming the second black general um, to this, in this post. Um, if nominated and confirmed by the Senate, two black men would lead the Pentagon for the first time ever. Yay for representation. Amazing, yeah. amazing. There's so much, and you think about the talent, uh, the the not white man talent in the military branches over the last, uh, you know, forever, uh, and the fact that this is the first time, and we're still doing firsts in uh, 2023. Um, Here we are. But progress. Progress. So, progress. Uh, great. Yes. I'm, yeah, super, super exciting. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right, folks, that's our episode of Inclusive Collective. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilia Media. We would love to hear from you. We say this all the time. Send us an email, inclusivecollective at refillion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, go ahead and reach out, subscribe, and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us for consulting, check out Nadia at nasconsultants.com and me, Rob, at tecanoconsulting.com. I also want to thank our guests, Dr. Joya Smith and Dr. Greg Beaver. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.